Ida Tarbell is sort of the found one of the like founders of what we consider modern journalistic ethics. For example, you wouldn't betray a source. Things like off the record, not allowing the people you were interviewing, for example, to buy you things. She said that at 14, she would kneel and pray to God and she would say, I must be free and to be free, I must be a spinster. She's getting really popular and they decide, okay, now we want you to do a 20 part series on life of Abraham Lincoln. Holy shit. So she does and she does things that people didn't really do before. She decides she's going to go to his like humble origins. She's going to find old friends. She's going to people who grew up with him. And she ends up finding evidence of more than 300 unpublished letters and speeches. Welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women in history. I'm Sam Eggers. I'm Sarah Gorski. And I'm Justin Xavier. And you guys, I'm really excited to talk to you today about this badass woman. Um, And actually, I have to get credit because um, my husband actually mentioned her to me. I hadn't heard of her. And then there was an article in The Atlantic about her. And he was like, you got to read this. Maybe she could be one of your broads. And I read the article and I was like, oh, she's got to happen. She's awesome. So... Her name is Ida Tarbell, which is a great name. And Ida Tarbell is sort of the found, one of the like founders of what we consider modern journalistic ethics. For example, you wouldn't betray a source. That is not something that was going on in like the year 1800, right? Like this was, that was not a, a, a bedrock of journalistic standards until Ida Tarbell and her cohorts began sort of creating what they thought they could create to make investigative journalism really, really solid. So things like off the record, that's something we sort of all hear like journalists use, not allowing the people you were interviewing, for example, to buy you things. That is something that they set as standards. They And they really wanted to establish the idea of um, objectivity in their reporting. So pretty badass whoa she sounds like a broad i want to know sam oh she's (laughs) totally abroad you want to know totally abroad that's like the foundation of good reporting (laughs) and she's an old-timey broad too which i like not a super old-timey broad but fairly old-timey so dear ida was born november 5th 1857 in hatch hollow in pennsylvania it's a great name I know it sounds like some like country western song or like some town that a country western singer grew up in and then later turned into a theme park. <laughs> so Ida grows up in Hatch Hollow in Pennsylvania and her family their work at the oil fields there. And so at the time it wasn't like there were massive corporations that owned all of the oil. It was a lot of like independent small families that owned these little were working these oil fields and they might have, you know, like one or two little spots they were working. And this would, that was where her family was. And uh, Tarbell writes about this time later on. She says, No industry of man in its early days has ever been more destructive of beauty, order, decency than the production of petroleum. Wow. Ahead of the curve there. Exactly. Because she saw some nasty things. Um, There were accidents, um, little explosions that ended up killing people in the neighborhood. Um, At the time... There's also a 
really, really famous scheme that goes on where um, Standard Oil, and you guys have all probably heard of John Rockefeller, right? Yeah. Yes, yes, that name is familiar. <laughs> yeah, so John D. Rockefeller is a big oil tycoon, and he owns Standard Oil, and he pretty much swoops in, and the company, they decide they're going to form a monopoly and pretty much wipe out all of these independent little producers. And it's just devastating to everybody. They They form an alliance with the railroads so that it's almost impossible for anybody to transport their oil. And um, so all of these teeny tiny producers have to say they're either going to fold or they're going to sell. So this is what Ida grows up in and sort of what she sees. So she really experiences firsthand the really shady, dirty side of this industry. That like extreme capitalism. She like witnessed it. Yeah. And she says later on, she said there was born in me a hatred of privilege. (sighs) So she like has a fire in her from early on and she's not playing around. And so even though her family is uh, struggling with money and they're dealing with a really, really tough situation, they really prize education. They're pretty liberal and they're really um, interested in what's going on in the world. They receive publications at their home. They get Harper's Weekly, Harper's Monthly. They get the New York Tribune and um, really advocate for their kids to, to study. And so she's actually pretty into school. She's really into the sciences. But she's also kind of like a spitfire. Like she she skips school a lot, and she's kind of truant. And uh, and later on, she said she said that at fourteen, she would kneel and pray to God, and she would say, "I must be free, and to be free, I must be a spinster." <laughs> oh my God, I love her. That's incredible. Wow. So this is like. This, I just love the idea of this like 14 year old girl, like just post civil war on her knees and saying like, I want to be free. I got to be free. So I'm going to have to be a spinster. The only way to be free is no men. <laughs> she knows what she's about. She knows. She knew then. She so did. She's not wrong. She's not wrong. Growing up with a hatred <laughs> of privilege at that time really just was a hatred of men. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So wow. she um she ends up she graduates from high school, the head of her class, even though she has like this issue with truancy. Um, and she's she's so interested in science, so she goes to Allegheny College and she's the only woman in her class, of course. Mm. And while she's there, she studies biology and she does a million things. She's like the head of a sorority that she sets up. She is the editor of the school paper. She's like super over overachiever. And so when she graduates and leaves school, she knows that she wants to contribute. So at this, at this time, how does a woman contribute? You know, there aren't many options out there. So she becomes a teacher and they describe her. She goes to Ohio to get this teaching job and listen to the classes that she teaches. I just can't even handle this. She teaches geology, botany, geometry, trigonometry, as well as languages, Greek, Latin, French, and German. Holy shit. Like... I just... She's badass. I just know everything there is to know, so... I, I just can't. I'm like, is can that be accurate? Can anyone teach that many things? I just feel like we're all getting dumber. So she does this for like a year or two, and then she quits because she finds that she's like, it's too much work, it's boring, and I don't get paid anything. It's because they're having you teach 25 subjects. <laughs> <laughs> of course it's too much work. Exactly. But also, like, nothing's changed since then. Like, teachers still, like, have to do way too much work and don't get paid anything. Mm-hmm. I've heard Finland's um, teachers oof. are treated nicely. Did you say Finland or England? Finland. Oh. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I bet. 
I bet. But I feel like they probably only have like three people per class. Right. I mean, <laughs> there aren't that many people in Finland. <laughs> Don't they also have like a lot of other support systems set up so exactly. that people don't suffer so much there. <laughs> um, so she, anyway, so after she, she's, she's like, I don't want to teach anymore. It's too much work. It's boring. I don't make any money. So she decides she's going to move home to Pennsylvania and um, she's going to try her hand at writing because she was writing for the college paper and she really enjoys it. And so she almost immediately is offered a job for a, um, uh, a magazine uh, or publication called the Chautauquan. And so uh, and she quickly kind of builds reputation writing for them um, because well, the first piece, it sort of gets her noticed. This author writes a piece, uh, uh, quote, women as inventors. And this piece comes out and it claims that only 300 women hold patents in the U.S. at this time and that women can never become successful inventors. And Ida's like, well, that sounds like bullshit. So she writes her own investigative article. And she's like, this is actually wrong because actually there's over 2,000 female patent holders. And she writes in the article, quote, three things worth knowing and believing that women have invented a large number of useful articles, that these patents are not confined to, quote, clothes and kitchen devices as the skeptical masculine mind averse, that invention is a field in which women has large possibilities. And so, like, she takes off. Yes! Things are good. She's writing. <laughs> And I think this sort of gives her the confidence. She's like, I'm getting the fuck out of Pennsylvania. I'm not teaching. I'm writing. And she moves to Paris in 1891. Oh, fuck yeah. Get the fuck out of America. (laughs) She's just done. And what's cool is that when she gets to Paris, she does such awesome shit. She gets there and she starts holding like language salons and she's taking classes at the Sorbonne and learning about history. And she's just doing awesome, awesome shit. It sounds like a fantastic life. And, um word kind of spreads about her writing. She's freelancing at this time. And the creator of McClure's magazine, which ends up becoming a very big publication, hears about her as a writer and goes to Paris and is like, you, I want you to be the editor of McClure's. She's like, um, she gets a weird feeling from the guy. She's like, I don't want to do it, but I'll, I'll, I'll write articles for you. So she starts doing really incredible articles. She interviews Louis Pasteur, she interviews Emile Zola, Alexandra Dumas, and so she's like, she's she's fucking kicking. She's doing really, really well. She's doing so well that she's like, okay, I'm going to go back to America, I'll get a salary, and uh, they commission her to write a biographical series on Napoleon. This, like, solidifies her reputation. This thing comes out, and people are like, oh my god, this woman is an incredible writer, and she's writing in a style that is um, really, really, uh, like, jam-packed full of facts and really compelling narrative. And it's sort of a thing that people haven't seen as much before. And the thing that I thought was interesting was that I, when you think about like, oh, why is it such a big deal? It's just a magazine. But at that time, um, newspapers were viewed as being political and sensational, and they weren't really considered to be as trustworthy. And there's no radio yet. So Mm. it's like magazines are where the serious work is happening which I thought was kind of cool. There wasn't radio yet? It wasn't the, like, big thing. So this is, like, a late 1890s. So this is, it's not like people have radios in their homes. Oh. No one's like, oh, I can turn on and listen to the radio. Oh, I thought radios were older than that. My bad. No, I don't think it was until, like, even, like, the late 20s, early 30s that people started getting them in their homes, even. Oh. Right? Well, then I'm just all fucked up. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I guess they had like those Victor phones. Those, that's what they had at home at this point, right? Yeah. Or whatever mm-hmm. you, gramophones, I think, <laughs> whatever you call those. Maybe, maybe some people during World War I started to get radios in their homes. Maybe if they were rich. 
I don't know. We should look into this. I'm curious now. I did a, a little bit of radio research. The first ever clear transmission of human speech was in 1919. Ooh, later than we thought. Yeah, and regular wireless broadcasts for entertainment started in Argentina first in the year 1920. And it wasn't until the mid to late 20s that people started like buying radios and people started creating content for it. Making podcasts? Exactly. Podcasts started in the, like 1923, I think. <laughs> for, the, for the first time in my life, I'll say it. I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for looking that up. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, so at this time, uh, this is like 1895, and uh, she's back in America. And she, as she's, she's done this biographical series on Napoleon. She's getting really popular. And they decide, okay, now we want you to do a 20-part series what? on the life of Abraham Lincoln. Holy shit. So she does. And she does things that people didn't really do before. She decides she's going to go to his, like, humble origins. She's going to find old friends. She's going to people who grew up with him. And she ends up finding evidence of more than 300 unpublished letters and speeches. <gasps> and it just, like explodes the popularity and the circulation of McClure's magazine. And she's recognized everywhere. She's hugely popular. They're like, she's she's the one, right? And so she's always had this sort of bent for justice, right? Where she's like, um, she has a disdain for the privileged. She is uh, She grew up in these really tough circumstances. And so in about 1902, the magazine decides they want to look at corruption. They want to look at something shady that's going on, and they want to see what they can do. And so they're looking at two industries. They're looking at oil, and they're looking at sugar. Oh, yes. She's their girl. They end up deciding, we're going to go, we're going to take on oil. Ooh. Oh, yes. How How perfect is it? that we have Ida here who grew up with this disdain for the oil industry and she's all ready to get her fucking investigative journalist attitude up in there and just find out what's going on. So they begin publishing these serialized articles about the Standard Oil Company and it is massively popular and incredibly important. So they become so popular, they end up turning them into a book and publishing them. It becomes a bestseller. People cannot believe how corrupt and manipulative the Standard Oil Company is. The, the risks that she took at the time to investigate them were massive. People were saying, you know, don't do it because Johnny Rockefeller has so much power that if you start investigating him, he's just going, he'll destroy your career, your career will be over. And she's like, eh, not into it. She's like, no, it'll be fine. Did he, he did he try? Was there all was there like some shady shit? Like were there attempts at to like bribe her or like well shut the short like or did her editors get like tell oh my god, tell us all Sam. <laughs> well I, I don't know if anything like I don't think there's like a hit put out on her or anything, but there is and this is from the article um that was in the Atlantic, there is a, a thing where they talk about how she, so she tries to get into the offices to meet with John D. Rockefeller. And, of course, he's not having it. He's like, I'm not, I'm not meeting with her. <laughs> so he sends his, like, you know, gross crony to meet with her, right? This guy's name is Henry Hellhound Rogers. Because <laughs> this guy is, like, Henry a wow. nightmare, right? <laughs> you don't get the nickname Hellhound if you're a wholesome member of society who only does things on the up and up. No. Oh, my God. Exactly. <laughs> and so uh, Rockefeller sends 
Hellhound Rogers to the interview because he's like, your job is to your your job is to spin this so that you make what happens happens, right? Oh my god! And so uh, I'm just gonna read you a little clip from this article because I thought it explained their meeting very well. Um, it says when he gave her a glass of milk, she insisted on paying. Uh, when he pressed to know who had told her something, she refused to say. When she ran some near-finished copy by him, what would today qualify as fact-checking, she refused to let him make changes beyond offering corrections. And so at this time, these are things that, like, you didn't do. Mm-hmm. And, and it is, I love the idea of him being like, here's some milk. And she's like, no, 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 I'll pay for my own milk. You don't buy <laughs> you me don't milk. You don't buy me milk, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And so when the book is published and the series are, serialized articles are out, um, it would con- it contributes to the dissolution of Standard Oil as a monopoly. Wow. It takes them down. And it leads to, and this is, I'm reading quotes because I could not remember all this, it leads to the Clayton Antitrust Act, to the passage of the Hepburn Act in 1906 to oversee the railroads, the 1910 Mann-Elkins Act, which gave the Interstate Commerce Commission power over oil rates, and the creation of the Federal Trade Commission Holy in shit. 1914. Wow. So it is an incredibly important expose. And she's sort of, they end up laying the groundwork for this is how you do investigative journalism. And you can see this is how investigative journalism can lead to really important change. God, do you think like, I'm kind of like, I mean, living in the era we live in now, obviously stories get buried all the time and people are bought off or whatever. But I wonder like how the standard oil like could have known that that was happening and not actually shut it down. Like if it was just like so early in journalism that they didn't expect that anyone would actually tell the story. Well, I think it's, I think it's a lot. I think that it's a lot of that. It's a lot of arrogance. They had so much power and everything was so centralized. And I don't think that anyone had been challenged like that before. And then actually had it turn into something where it affected them. And in the article I was reading about her, they also said that it was an incredible amount of work. Like she couldn't actually get to Rockefeller. So they ended up going through all these like teeny tiny court cases that had happened, all these like smaller cases that had gone up against Standard Oil. And she'd pulled all these like hours of testimony from people who had sworn under oath to pull out these facts. And it was like an exhaustive amount of work. And so I just think they were probably, I think they just thought like, this is some woman doing like a magazine article. Wow. Right? Yeah. What is she going to do? Right? Yeah. They just, she hasn't done the work, the legwork. Mm-hmm. I, I think... I think it just probably shocked them. This also was probably before the court system protected them as well, too. So if those documents all were available, Mm -hmm. like it's not like everybody signed NDA. Like now there's like NDAs and all this other shit that happens when there's a settlement. So this must have been like kind of pre that too, right? Yeah. There's like, it's so early on. Um, And so pretty much she was at this time, then she's, she is credited with constructing a new form of journalism. Like this hasn't been done before. People haven't researched people in this way. And so at this point now she does so many things after this point that I literally was like, I don't even know how to tell you all of it because she does so much. She's such an overachiever. It makes me want to just like be like, well, I quit because I don't do anything. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to start, I'm going to try to go through like as quickly as I can what happens after this. And um, it's important to note too that like when all of this happens with Standard Oil, 
if this had happened today, she would have probably won a Pulitzer Prize. Like if that had existed at the time. Yeah. It's, it's that big of a deal, you know? Yeah. What was um, the book that she published about it? Oh, so they compiled all of the articles that, that had been published mm-hmm. and they called it the history of the Standard Oil Company. And so they just aired all that dirty laundry. Oh, I love it. It's so great. Oh, it's so, so I love good. it, too. It so happy. Oh, this is so satisfying. This is a satisfying broad right. story. Yeah, she is. She's a happy broad story. She doesn't, and she doesn't have a sad ending. She just has an awesome ending. So um, after she's worked at McClure's now for years, she goes on to work for the American Magazine, um, and she does that for some years. World War I breaks out, and Woodrow Wilson invites her to take part in the Women's Committee of the Council of National Defense. When what this means is pretty much like what can they what can the women do to help the developing food crisis, and so they like encourage women to plant vegetable gardens and how to dry and can foods, and they have them you know open up daycare centers so that women can go work in factories while the men are gone, like stuff like this. And of course, she like heads it up and is incredible at it. And when then when the war ends, she's like, well, I'm going to go to France and I want to interview and people and hear learn about the war, and then I'm going to write stories about that. So she does that. She publishes a novel. She writes multiple biographies on people. She's on tons of like boards and delegations. And so she then completes her own autobiography called All in a Day's Work. <laughs> and when she was 82. <laughs> and this is 1939. And at this time, Ooh. she has Parkinson's. And by the way, she was di- she um, gets Parkinson's. Apparently she was diagnosed when she was much younger, but the doctors didn't want to tell her because they were like, oh, we don't want to upset her. So they didn't tell her. <laughs> and then like years later, oh, she finds out. Bastards. It's horrible. Man. So um, then at the after she finishes her autobiography, she begins working on a second book. Mind you, she's 82. And this one is called Life After 80. <laughs> she's just showing off. Amazing. And... Uh, She's uh, busy writing and doing that until she dies um, of pneumonia at age 86. And so she had a very long and happy life and achieved a lot. And after... Um, after she passed, she's received all kinds of accolades. As she should. um, She's known as a huge contributor to modern journalism. And uh, her house in Connecticut is a National Historic Landmark. So if you're in... uh, in Connecticut, you can go take a look at that. What's great is that she's just so, she's widely respected in the field of journalism and she really made her mark. And so we can thank her for doing all of that badassery. Man, she blew up oil. I love it. Isn't it great? I love it. But I also think like, oh, she'd be so disappointed to see, like to be here now. Yeah. Yeah, she got out just in time. <laughs> she did her bit. Now it's time for all of us to do our No, just in time, just in time in the in the 40s or just whatever. right before World War II, you know, she didn't have to see all of her good, you know. That's true. Go down. That's true. I don't know. She's an amazing broad Sam. She's cool, right? That was incredible. Ida Tarbell, the hero broad of journalism. So, tell everybody where they can find us. I want to tell you guys that we love it when you listen. And if you want to support the show, the best thing you do is go into iTunes and leave us a glowing review or tell a friend about the show. And you can always reach out to us on Instagram at Broads You Should Know. Or you can email us at Broads You Should Know at gmail.com. And we'll be back next week to tell you all about another broad you should know.